You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you all to City Lights Live, our virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring and summer seasons. Before we start, I would like to remind everyone, City Lights is now open for business. We are open seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. And we are following San Francisco Health Department guidelines to keep your visit as safe as possible. So you can once again, browse our stacks. Please do wear facial covering. As many of you know, City Lights is also a publishing house as well as a bookstore and continues to produce books in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Pocket Poet series. We continue to publish not only poetry, but literary fiction, literature and translation, books about art and politics and the environment, and much, much more. We have great new books coming out this season that include work by Caribbean Fragosa, Seshu Foster, Michael McClure, and many others. So please do visit our website at citylights.com to learn more. This evening, we are thrilled to have with us an exceptional wordsmith. I should say, actually, a couple of exceptional wordsmiths. Mira Sethi's work has caught the eye of many a discerning reader with her brilliant fiction. And City Lights can be included in that list of literary admirers. We are happy to be celebrating the release of her debut short fiction collection. It is titled, Are You Enjoying? It is published by the venerable Alfred Knopf. Mira Sethi is an actor and a writer. She grew up in Lahore and attended a Wellesley College, after which she worked as a books editor at the Wall Street Journal. She has written op-ed pieces for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian. She regularly appears in mainstream Pakistani uh, series on TV there, and she divides her time between Lahore, Karachi, and San Francisco. She will be joined tonight in conversation by Miranda Popke, Miranda Popke's writing has appeared in the New Republic, in the New Yorker's Page Turner blog, the Paris Review Daily, the Hairpin, GQ, uh, New York Magazine's The Cut, and many others. Uh, her debut novel, Topics of Conversation, was published by Alfred Knopf in 2020. So it is such a great pleasure to have you both grace our virtual halls. Mira Sethi, Miranda Popke, welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you so much, Peter. I am thrilled to be here, thrilled to be helping launch Mira's really exceptional collection into the world. And I would just love it if you could start with a reading, just to give us a taste of the wonderful language of the collection. Uh, thank you, Miranda. I shall read from uh, my story, Tomboy. And Peter, thank you for that overly generous introduction. I am thrilled to be here and uh, welcome to everyone who's watching and listening. So this is my book, Are You Enjoying? It's a collection of short stories um, set in Pakistan, and I will be reading from the story, Tomboy. He was the only boy I knew who didn't want to drive his own car. Muttering under his breath, he traversed it in a halting zigzag from the driveway. And as soon as we were on the road, I'd slip into the driver's seat. We were 16 when I bashed up the SUV his father bought him, my stoned face frozen in an uncomprehending smile as Zara Rijaz looked on in horror. He took the blame. 
all those hours we spent playing Street Fighter 2. I think of them now as a childish rehearsal for what our lives would become. Zarar was always Chun-Li, a vixen in a puffy blue dress, forever flipping her legs in combat. I was Blanca, the wild green man from the jungle, likely to win, but not without taking major hits. After my father left us, I was 16, my sisters 10 and eight, Mama began to lean on Zarar's parents in a style they seemed to welcome. The rich like looking after the less rich, so long as they look rich enough to blend into their parties. Which Mama did, of course, offering herself up for every kind of service, from handmaid to boon companion to sounding board. Our mothers had been best of friends for three decades. Their whole cohort had carried over from school. Look at these two, Auntie Maliha, the most lethal of the friends, used to say when Zarar and I got in line to cut the cake at his overblown birthday parties. The odd couple, hmm? You two should marry each other. Say, inshallah, I bared my teeth. Zarar would scold me for fighting with Mama. If I wax your mustache with my own hands, you won't feel a thing, he pleaded. His curling fat hands reminded me of the mesh washing sponge in our kitchen, but I didn't tell him this. One day, before Zarar could intervene, Mama bullied me into dyeing my upper lip blonde with Jolene bleach. When I burnt myself by wrecking the proportions of powder and bleach, Mama said it was because I showed no interest in such things. She was mother enough to splatter egg white all over my face. She struggled on her librarian salary at the private school where my sisters and I were enrolled on a discounted fee. Papa had moved to Doha where, we heard, he worked as an overseer on a large royal estate. Auntie Maliha said, overseer means what? Driver, manager, what? Papa had been general manager at a nice hotel in Karachi. After the hotel shuttered, he moved to Qatar, but he didn't take us with him. We learned the bitter truth in bits and dribbles. There was a Malaysian involved, a woman he'd met at a shopping mall. He didn't even think of his daughters, Mama said, casually smearing us with her grief while giving my anger the ignition it had always wanted. A few weeks after Papa left Pakistan, our landlord stood in his vest and shalwar at the base of the stairs below our CVU apartment, a toothpick dangling from his pink mouth and demanded advance rent. Mama's face sank into silence. Um, some financial problems, I said, sliding down the stairs, though we had no financials and a ton of problems. Thank you so much, Mira. I'm really glad that you read from that story. It's hard to pick a favorite among the really wonderful stories in this collection, but I do love Tomboy in particular, and not only because I also have had discussions with my mother about dyeing my own mustache. <laughs> As an Italian woman, the, the dark upper lip hair, it's, it's real. Yeah, it really is. I wanted to ask you, your protagonist at the end of, of that story, and I won't, I won't spoil the sort of twists and turns that that story takes, but she has a moment with her husband where she's remarking on a, a, a mutual friend mm -hmm. and she describes her as brave. And I think that brave is a word that's, overused, I think, when, you know, describing works of literature, but I'm curious what it means for her, for your character, but also, also for you to be, to be publishing work that is quite daring, and that is 
that is really trying to paint a picture of different pockets, different communities in Pakistan that, you know, we ignorant Americans may not be familiar with. Miranda, thank you so much for asking that. And I'm not just saying this because I'm in conversation with you, but this has to be, this is the most thoughtful question I have been asked actually about my book, because a lot of the questions I've been asked so far have been about Pakistan and politics, and we'll get to that. And that's also very important. But thank you for asking that. And I think with my protagonist, without giving too much away, she calls the other lady brave because that other lady, as the folks, you guys who are watching will hopefully see when you read the book, she is living life on her own terms. And it's not easy to live life on your own terms in a country like Pakistan, even if you have a lot of privilege because of issues around sexuality and the imperatives, the often burdensome imperatives of family and your clan or your tribe um, and your parents. And then the larger, the superstructure above that, which is the state and the things that trickle down from the state. So my character says she's brave because she, she herself is living this kind of dual life and she hasn't yet been able to come to terms with what it is that she wants, although this I imagine is a turning point for her. And for me, yes, I did think a lot about the re- what the repercussions might be uh, writing about queer lives in Pakistan. But, you know, um, I said this yesterday, like I'm in my thirties now and I believe very strongly in a certain set of principles. I'm an outspoken feminist in Pakistan that sometimes gets me into trouble. And if I am not going to write the things that I know and I love deeply, right? This book comes actually from a place of fierce love and trauma and heartache and comedy, but it comes from a place of love. And buttressing my fear is my love for people who are struggling to live life on their own terms. And so um, I wrote this hoping that if there are, I know I have so many queer friends in and outside of Pakistan and in Pakistan, hoping that maybe if they read this, they can glimpse their lives and uh, you know feel, feel seen because fiction is ultimately, desire to write is desire to be seen fully. No, absolutely. I- completely agree that it's it's hard to imagine a life that you have not seen represented. And I, I think that's the experience that your protagonist is having in that moment. She's, she's seeing the life that she wishes she could live. Instead, as you say, she's living sort of a double life where she's married, but she does have queer desires. And it actually reminded me of another moment in an earlier story, Breezy Blessings. There's a moment when our main character in that story, who is an actress, an aspiring actress, she is noticing the older actresses on set and she's noticing specifically how they assign meaning by using inflection. So there's one kind of hmm, that's agreement. And there's one kind of hmm, that's like a rebuke. And I I love this phrase. You write that she envied the frugality of their verse. And I'm wondering if and how that relates to your own approach in writing about things that can be hot button issues. But also, I know when writing about something that is very important to me, even if it's not a hot political topic, that can feel very dangerous just Mm -hmm. personally, to be so personally vulnerable. So I'm wondering if there's... um, there's something in that frugality of their verse that you are also referring to your own writing in a way. I think what Mehek is gesturing at is that they are very seasoned actresses, right? And so they operate via innuendo. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the characters in my book actually, because 
they don't have access they are not able to assert their own identities. They, they're navigating these identities without having the luxury of actually verbalizing and asserting their identities in the way that say, uh, people have the luxury of doing say in the US. So they work via code, via signal, via innuendo. And I think what Mehek is envying is the fact that they can convey a whole range of emotion just by saying, Hmm. and shut down the conversation. Obviously they're senior actresses, so they have res they're respected. And so you are not, you're not probably not going to stand up to them, but she's actually referring to the tools that they have at their disposal, right? Vis-a-vis -vis my own writing, what exactly do you mean about that phrase? I'm wondering if the, the ways in which they are using coded language mm -hmm. is not only sort of content, but also in some ways form, Go where ahead asking the reader to do a little bit of the work to say or think what the characters themselves cannot quite express. Absolutely. I didn't just struggle with this. I was kind of petrified, right, while writing some of these. And not just uh, Tomboy, but also are you enjoying the title story? Because it's about infidelity, it's about a love affair, it's about an illicit relationship, a taboo relationship. So writing about sex, you know, Yes, I worried a lot about that. I worried about if somebody screenshots like a really, really uh, vivid passage and then says, look at her, she's, you know, spreading vulgarity. I mean, I, we, this is something I deal with in my life as an actress as well. But yes, at the level of the sentence, uh, it's definitely something I think about. But I didn't ever let that kind of stop me from saying what I wanted. And in many ways, Miranda, I think it actually makes you more creative. I am not wishing censorship upon anyone. God knows, you know, when there was censorship in Russia, people still wrote, uh, there is a ton of censorship in Pakistan and we still manage to tell stories um, and it's not great, but it does, it does force your most creative instincts out of you in a way that I think when you can say things very openly and very clearly, uh, you perhaps then the mind isn't concentrated, right? It leads to a certain concentration of the mind when you're forced to say things in code. And I did, and I did for, for Tomboy a little bit, yes. No, I definitely I agree. Of course, not wishing censorship on anyone, <laughs> but making that, that fact that you cannot on your own change and turning it into a, a sort of strength of your craft, making the subtleties there, but you have to look for them a little bit. You have to engage with the text. My favorite kind of book is one that asks you as the reader to, um, to work as well and is not just a passive experience. There's a, there's a part a little bit later also in, in Breezy Blessings where, uh, and I'll just, I'll just read this. I'm not gonna be as good as a, a reader as you because I am not an actress. Um, but for the first time, with a twist of sadness, Mehak understood what the actress meant to be a good actor was to brutishly woo your own most useful emotions, especially off screen. It was to make a pact with yourself that job came before and would withstand the small treacheries detected by the heart. I'm wondering if, and you're both a writer and an actress, so you can tell me if this is something that you wrote because it felt true to your acting, but I'm also curious whether this feels true at all to your writing, whether there's any kind of negotiation when you're writing something that's personal, where you're worried, you're putting something on the page that maybe loses, it, it loses something in, in the... Yeah, no, and, and, and again, thank you for asking super, these super smart questions and very thoughtful questions. Certainly as an actress, you know, the idea that there will be cruelty and there will be pain and the power structures are such that there 
that there will be cruelty, but off screen, right? Which is what the Me Too movement was all about, which is why it took decades for these stories to come out because it was assumed that you that, that the likes of Harvey Weinstein would do what they did in order to give you a, a place at the table, right? And so this is, I mean, we haven't really had our reckoning, a Me Too moment in Pakistan. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, still a lot of cruelty that goes on there. With my writing, I do think because this is my debut uh, book, I do think I put everything I had into it. And I think when I write personal essays, Miranda, that's when I sometimes feel like I'm kind of naked, right? Because it's the first person. So I think that makes a lot of difference. I think the third, third person narration gives you distance. And I think first person narration is immediate and it's confessional. And that's actually why I read from Tomboy because it's my only first person story and it immediately kind of pitches you into somebody's consciousness. Right. So when I write essays, I wrote a very personal essay for Vogue just now about my marriage and the pandemic and what it meant for us coming and going. And I was talking about my husband who had lost both his parents in the last four years, one after the other. And it was very personal, but he granted me permission to write about his life. And I did and wrote about us and our relationship and the difficulties we have weathered being apart. And the ennui I sometimes feel when I'm in San Francisco. So I think when I actually write nonfiction, I feel more exposed because then you have to be brutally honest. There's a part of me in every single character, but then you're, there's tremendous license to play around with that, right? So in fiction, I actually feel like I don't feel terribly exposed, but when I write personal writing, like an essay, nonfiction, then, I, then, then the onus is on me to be brutally honest. Otherwise, I don't feel good. Yeah, I think just from the craft perspective, I think it's also interesting that the story that is most explicit in its treatment of queer themes and most sort of affirming in its treatment of queer themes is also the first person story. I think that that's like, a, that's an exciting, exceptional choice. But may I, may I tell you a little, a cute little story? So I wrote this story, which was had a very different shape and form literally three weeks before I submitted it to my editor. And I showed it to a friend who was queer. And she said to me very politely, she said, um, you know, Mira, like, I, I love you and you're a great writer, but you're not queer and you're writing this queer story from a, the point of view of queer desire. Because there was a lot of kind of my protagonist in the earlier drafts would look at women in a certain way. And she said to me, she said, I, you're great, but this is not working. Like, don't you, you don't know what queer desire is like. So don't try and enter that consciousness. But you do know about patriarchy. So why don't you reframe this story from the point of view of patriarchy? And Miranda, it was such a like a hallelujah moment because I was I really struggled with this story early on in the early drafts. And then as soon as she said that, I was like, oh my God, yes. I, I, this is actually reading as comic writing because I don't know about queer desire. And so then I reframed the whole story. And it was a real breakthrough moment for me because then the story just ran when I when I start reframed it from the point of view of patriarchy. Well, um, I'm I'm glad that your I'm glad that your friend gave you this this wonderful piece of advice. And I think patriarchy features quite strongly in your book as well. I mean, one of the things that I really admired about it was women kind of not wanting to cede control of their lives and of their decisions to men and to society at large. And I think you do that so beautifully in topics of conversation, especially through the kind of stream of consciousness voice. Thank you. That's really lovely to hear. Um, something that you said when you were answering my question has prompted me to ask, you said there's a little bit of you in every one of your characters. Mm -hmm. So there's one story that a man for his time, mm. and it is about a young man named Hafiz, am I pronouncing? Mm -hmm. yeah. And he is, uh, he is sort of becoming radicalized 
I think that a lot of his emotions actually reminded me of when I've read about sort of men who are radicalized online, you know, red pilled or, you know, incel communities, that real anger towards women. Um, I'm curious what part of you, you were mining as you were sort of developing his character. So that's, again, a superb question. I think with Hafiz, I actually wanted to convey a kind of crisis of masculinity. And I think his relationship with his mother is where I could really come in with my own emotions, not necessarily about my mother, but about family, right? She is the sort of strong force in that family and also the very practical voice. She's a strong matriarch in that family. The father's a drug addict and Hafiz has to earn money to keep the family afloat and he resents that. But his mother is sort of, takes no bullshit. And so his, the way I wrote it was that he's trying to please her a little bit. I could write about family dynamics because, you know, we all have family, complicated family dynamics. I think one of the drawbacks of my book, actually, after I wrote it, I thought that the material reality of my characters was kind of like very similar. They're mostly upper middle class characters with one or two being like elite, like Sony's father is like a multimillionaire. She calls him a, she says he exudes the flattened paranoia of a multimillionaire. And then ZB is like this feudal. And Hafiz was the only real character. Mehek is also kind of comes from a middle class background, but Hafiz is comes from a lower middle class family and he's struggling and he has a crisis of masculinity. And that story is basically about that. And I am not so much in him as I have seen people like him. And so I have a very intimate kind of experience of what a character like him is struggling with. Right. He can sort of see the problems in his family and his reaction is to his reaction is, I think, such a human reaction, which is misdirected anger and anger at, you know, people who already have less power than he does. And I think that that's such an astute way to have that play out, because that's, of course, it's so human to take your anger and then pretend that the thing that is truly making you angry are the people who are already oppressed and who you can dump your anger on without fear of retaliation. 100%. I'm curious, so the stories, it's not like linked stories, but there is a story that's broken into two parts. And I did notice that, that there are some characters who popped up. So Hafiz, for example, is quite a fan of the actress from the earlier story, which is, I was so delighted to see her pop up again. I'm wondering why you made that choice. It does feel really welcoming for a reader, which is which is really lovely. I love that you're you like don't translate or explain the Urdu terms that populate the stories because you're not writing an instructional manual. You are writing, and you know if someone doesn't know a term, they can Google it. We have the internet. But then there was this this sense of the stories building a kind of world and a kind of community that the reader was being welcomed into. So I'm curious how you thought about you know, ordering the stories and, and, and structuring them and, and, and populating them with these characters. You are such a, you've read my book so closely, Miranda, honestly, my very dear friends have not read it as closely as you have. So you are really on the top of the list of people I am. I'm incredibly grateful for your very, very thoughtful and close reading. So yes, again, as you said, Hafiz is human. He wants to control his sister's life. He doesn't like women activists, but he watches TV right? He's, a, he's aspirational. He watches TV. He has a libido. He has a crush on this actress. And she, because she's, she was kind of had a cri her own crisis in Breezy Blessings, right? A crisis of confidence. I wanted to show that she has now perhaps overcome that. And she has become mainstream enough 
for Hafiz to have to, to say that you know Mehek is actually my favorite actress. And again in Tomboy, there's an unnamed actress who has big brown eyes and she smiles with her big brown eyes and slips away. And that could also perhaps be Mehek, right? That she has left that unnamed. And similarly, in a life of its own, when the girl is paraded naked through the streets, the women and the women activists in a man for his time are taking out a protest, a march to protest that. So I just wanted to show in a very kind of light way that this is all happening at the same time. And all of these events are kind of interlinked, you know, and that's obvious enough. So that's that's what I wanted to, to do. So many spoilers, Aisha is saying. I'm so sorry, but <laughs> I don't think that the stories lose anything if you know how they that start. If you can hear some barking in the background, it's because my dog has noticed that there's someone walking by our window. He's very <laughs> perceptive. So Mahek is an is an actress, and, and you too are currently a television actress. I'm curious what the art of being an actor nourishes and what the art of being a writer nourishes for you, because different ways of, of expressing the, the creative artistic desire. So my husband, who during the pandemic, he poor thing had to he was in an apartment with me for three months when I eventually made it to San Francisco. And he literally was holding his head one day and saying, oh my God, you are such an extrovert. And he was like, I'm okay with being stuck inside the house, but you, you are a huge extrovert who needs to feed off of people's energies. And I think the acting really nourishes that. I think the acting when I'm, when I'm performing, you know, when I read this, I kind of come alive when I'm mimic, mimicking someone or when I'm performing really. And the writing is when I go off on my own and recharge and take stock of things. My friend has this wonderful line on his, in his Instagram bio in which he says, part-time participant, full-time observer. And I sometimes wonder if I am also a part-time participant and a full-time observer. I do think I have been a writer longer than I have been an actor. And I do think that those instincts are more developed and more honed in me. Um, and I need to recharge and I need to then take stock of things that have happened. But I love, you know, I'm a creature of, I, I, I'm a social, very social creature. And the other thing that I actually wanted to relate the two together is that the acting actually really helps the writing. So at the level of the sentence, just my brother actually said to me, he said, it's, you know, it's quite cinematic the way you structure your, your stories. And I hadn't thought of it until he said that. And I think because I'm an actor, I, want, I go from scene to scene. And sometimes maybe that's not a good thing. Sometimes you need to let the prose breathe and kind of have a flow state stream of consciousness, something that topics of conversation does really, really well. Um, you're able to just inhabit an interiority for a really long time. And I think that's very precious. But the acting does teach me also how to structure scenes. I think I, because I'm an actor, I can do scene setting quite like I'm, 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 I like doing it. I agree that you're also very good at it. I agree. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're holding back and you don't want to give yourself the compliment. So I will give you the compliment. You know, the cuts are really, they're really, they're not startling. That's not the word I want to use, but you're able very nimbly to cut from one scene to another. And a lot also happens in that negative space, which I think is, is something that comes potentially from filmmaking where when you move from one scene to the next, sometimes as a viewer, you're making the links in your own mind and the position is working. There is a lot of heaviness in this book. There's a lot of tough, serious themes. 
and and serious events but there is there's all there are some some moments of like really lovely humor thinking of this moment in tomboy so I, I think we've already spoiled that she gets married I got married to clamp mama into a golden permanent silence. I have not one, not two, but three of you, she used to say, as if her daughters were benign tumors that had to be removed in order for her to be at peace, (laughs) which I love. And I also think like I can just, I know exactly it conjures so precisely, just a whole attitude and a a whole way of being. But um, yeah, I'm curious about about adding these little notes of humor and how you're using humor to offer sort of moments of respite for the reader and for your characters. I think we all have aunts and uncles, right? Like, so I'm channeling so many of my, like the aunties, you know, in South Asia aunties, there are a lot you can't get away from. And so, you know, a combination of my mother and the stuff we see on television, the housewives of Pakistan, marriage is a big Team, uh, I, I often joke that Pakistani drama series are about either they're married, they're about marriages and funerals, right? Marriage is a huge theme in Pakistani drama series. Even the show I'm doing right now, I'm trying to, I'm playing the, the, the older micromanaging sister. Uh, yeah, she's Aisha Singh, marriage is the only theme to my younger siblings, and I'm trying to arrange all their lives. So I hear a lot of this. So that dialogue is just me keeping my pores open and my ears open because that stuff just drops into. You know, the consciousness behind that just drops into, parachutes into my life. And so I'm just using that. And then I think I'm definitely using humor as a way to release a lot of these heavy themes. Even in Are You Enjoying the Title Story, you know, Usher is, uh, he's a fool, but he's also quite funny, right? He's kind of unintentionally funny. And she, she doesn't like the fact that he's infuriating to talk to, but she's also kind of charmed by it. And so there's this, you know, because she's feeling suffocated in her home and she has a complicated relationship with the father and her mom's, anyway, I won't give everything away. But humor is a way to bond, really. It's a way to bond and it's a way to not take yourself too seriously. And I think in Pakistan, actually, that's a survival strategy because we are fending off expectations and fending off social mores and fending off rules, actually, very real rules. We use humor as a way to, to bond and to just you know, to let some steam out. There's so much discussion of how do you, you know, how do you create a space for yourself with all of these strictures? And so in Tomboy, she's actually able to sort of create a space for herself by getting married because that gets her mom off her back. You can put a little bit of distance between yourself and whatever the the really painful emotion that you're experiencing is. It is a coping mechanism. The humor is where a lot of the subliminal darkness also exists, right? So, yes, of course. We do have one question that I want to get to, but it reminded me of my my mother when I was born was uh, spoke Italian, but not not much English, so I grew up speaking Italian. And I wonder when you write, well, my question which is more personal is what language do you dream in? But I <laughs> you don't have to answer that. I actually I actually talked about this yesterday in a conversation I had. I think my intellectual life takes place in English and I think much of my emotional life takes place in Urdu. When I hear Urdu songs, when I hear, you know, Bollywood, when I hear like there's this movie called Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jayenge, which is actually, which I've quoted at the beginning of the book. It just, it's, it's transportive, right? Because it's the language I grew up speaking. So Urdu is, is the language of my heart and English is the language of my head. And it is kind of like that. And, you know, it's funny because um, 
I've written this book in English and every some a lot of my fans like follow my acting career think that I am like some that English comes very easily to me it doesn't it actually doesn't I, I was saying to my husband I said you know a word like holster like it's not in my active vocabulary I would probably say you know that thing you put around your belt in which you then put something a holster I would have to look up similarly pew if I go into a church I will probably say I'm sitting on a bench the word pew is not in my active vocabulary. Silos. I don't know what silos are. I had to look up silos. So funny moments like that. I'm constantly encountering moments like that. I love to read in English. I love the writing. My favorite novelist in the world is Alan Hollinghurst, who is a British novelist in his 60s. He's just like he's sublime at the level of the sentence. But I struggle a lot with English. I have ESL moments all the time. <laughs> I mean, you were saying the word holster and I was like, like I don't think that word's in, that word's in my active vocabulary. <laughs> if I go into a church, I'm just as likely to say I'm sitting on a bench as a pew. <laughs> oh, and I, I had a question that I, I lost it. So let's, I'm going to lean a little bit on our, um, our lovely viewers. And we had a question from Aisha um, who asked, did you feel anything was lost in translation when writing? Um... No, because I've tried my best to convey as clearly as I can what the characters feel and uh, the complicatedness of their interior life. So lost vis-a-vis -vis what, I don't understand, but I don't think, I think I, no, I don't think anything was lost. I wonder if the question was in part, if there are things that mm, you felt you couldn't quite find an English word for. Yeah, that's just a whole other conversation, right? Because I mean, I'm being published by an American publisher. I am also aware of the fact that I am, ultimately doing some kind of translation, right? Like I am not interested in only being a bridge maker, but I'm also bringing a world to people like you, incredibly thoughtful readers like you. So yeah, as Arundhati Roy says, never complicate what is simple and never simplify what is complicated. It's a good rule to live by. Um, we're getting some more questions, which I will read to you. Uh, question for Mira. What's next for Mira? You write, and I've seen some of your dramas. Is there something else that you want to explore in writing or even non-writing? I think I'm, I'm going to start writing my novels soon. I have an idea that's kind of roaming around in my head these days. But as, as Miranda is probably also, this is maybe the same for you also. It's only after I've written what I wanted to write that I realized, oh, this is what I wanted to write all along. I actually don't know what I want to write until the thing, the damn thing has been written. So yeah, and beyond that, no, I mean, I think for me, it's just trying to figure out how I can be between San Francisco and Karachi in a way that is healthy and easy to do. Currently, that's very much on my mind. It's a long commute. <laughs> can you talk about your writing routine when it comes to short stories and how it's impacted when you're doing media projects? Yes, so I write best when I wake up. So I wake up and I get straight to my desk. Sometimes I won't even eat for about four hours and the minute I wake up I get to my desk and I start writing and I'm most fresh in the morning and I find that if the day goes by and I kind of like languidly make my way to my computer around 6 p.m it doesn't do it for me so early morning when you haven't your mind hasn't in interfaced with anyone or anything that's the best time to write. I think so too and I've never been able to wake up in the morning and write <laughs> so I know that that's the correct thing to do, and I've never been able to do it. First, wrote a remarkable book called Topics of Conversation. So when did you, how, I'm curious, where, where and how did you write that? 
Mostly, mostly at like between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m. when I'd run out of other things that I pretended I had to do before I could write. You know, the house would be really, really clean. I would have, you know, a lot of bread baked, some soups on the stove. And when I was finally done and my, you know, my dog was asleep, it was like, okay, well, now you have no more excuses. No more excuses. <laughs> Are you, I'm actually... I am going to ask these questions, but I'm curious if you've gotten writing done and I'm asking all of my writer friends and now I'm just going to assume that we're friends. Um, I'm asking all of my writer friends, have you gotten writing done during the pandemic? Because I found it impossible. No, none. I was editing my book. Um, so I actually was also, I wrote, rewrote Tomboy during the pandemic. So I did get some writing done, but nothing beyond this book. No. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. So Melita Granger asks, can you talk about your editing and revision process. Yes, it is, oh my God. The most false thing about becoming a writer is that you have a book and you get to show off your book and nobody talks about how much rewriting that went into it. I mean, I'm practically tripping over my words right now because I rewrote the shit out of all of these stories. And the writing takes you to places that you hadn't anticipated. Um, I often say that I think in order to write. The writing is what tells me what it is that I think, right? So after I've written the thing, I know what it is that I think. And so the, re the editing process works like this. I write something, it's very raw. I'm actually not self-conscious when I start writing because I know it's a vomit and I know there's nothing to be done with a vomit. So you just do it. And then later on, you can you go and clean it, but it gives you something to work with. And so I write and then I clean it up. And then I think around draft 15, I show it to my editor. It takes, I mean, it takes at least 15 drafts. And then they say, okay, you've got a scaffolding, but, you know, where is this going? So, you know, I've, I've worked on these seven stories for five years. That's a long time for seven stories. It's almost like a story a year. So, so writing is, is really, uh, it's quite grueling. Yeah, no, I, I agree. My, my joke about my first novel, my only novel, is that I had to think about it for 20 years before I could write any of it. So I just think for about another 20 years. And you, so and, you kind of, and you kind of said that in your acknowledgments as well, which I actually really appreciated. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, if you're going to, why not be honest, I figure. Aisha asks, well, her second question is Karachi versus San Francisco. And I think I know what your answer is. Well, look, I've already said it, um, but Karachi is <laughs> with where the work is and where the identity is and where a lot of the fun is. But honestly, like San Francisco, I've now made really lovely friends in San Francisco and I'm incredibly grateful for them. And I will say when I come to the US, I'm often forced to be a more accountable individual and that's a whole other thing, but I'm deeply grateful for that. Would you ever, and this is also from Aisha, would you ever consider production or script writing? I'd love to, Aisha, if you want to, if you know any cool script writers, maybe connect them to me because I have, I want stories uh, to tell stories in Urdu, but I, uh, I haven't found anyone to work with. And if, uh, if you know, if you have ideas, let me know. I'm, I'm really looking to get into content creation. Yes. I do not have any connections, but we'll put the call out there. Maybe you and I can, Miranda, maybe you and I can write a screenplay together. I, I would love it. Let's yeah, let's do that. Varsha asks, are you the kind of writer who plans it all in advance or one of those who need to surprise themselves and somehow through the writing itself, the ideas emerge? Yes, it's the latter. It's exactly what you said. I don't think in order to write, I write so that I may know what it is that I'm thinking. And I don't plan in advance. And I honestly, 
this is not a critique of writers who plan in advance, but I can't relate to it at all because so much of the beauty of me writing fiction is discovering things that I didn't know. You know, my take on identity politics. Yes, of course, I'm progressive and I have a take, but it was only after writing this book that I really understood what I really felt about the world. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things about writing fiction is that it, there is a kind of slow dredging up of your subconscious. And then you're like, oh, this is what I think about this issue. It's a really quite quite amazing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's I, I write in part, in large part, to figure out what it is that I think. And when I get the words on the page, I know if they're right and I know if they're wrong. And if it's just a thought, it's much vaguer. Uh, this is a question, um, again, from Varsha. What advice do you have for aspiring writers? Oh, Varsha, um, if it consumes you, you'll probably end up doing it because I find that that is the case with most writers. And get a, have a community around you. Something that I don't have in Karachi is a community of writers. And I miss it, you know. Um, I have a community of actors, but I don't have a community of writers. And, you know, sh shop, workshop your, your work with people who you respect and admire and keep going. And, you know, you're not gonna get it right the first time or the 10th time or the 20th time, but you might get it right the 50th time and you have to be in it for the long haul. It's quite actually quite, uh, quite painful because you don't get it right and then one day you get it right it is yeah it's a long process my two pieces of advice are carry a notebook or something I actually don't even use a notebook I use my iPhone note ditto and write when you feel uncomfortable when what you're writing makes you feel uncomfortable that's when you know you're on the right path that's that's my my advice did publishing your first book change your process of writing change my process of writing. No, I think I will probably write my novel. Inshallah, when I do, I think it'll be the same process. I think my instinct will be sharper because I've now written a book, but the process will be as mysterious and as, as uncomfortable. I really like what you said about, uh, about discomfort. It's, it is true. Okay, so we have a couple of questions um, about, well, <laughs> this one's funny. Is the stereotype of writers writing away in coffee shops a real thing? Sure, or writing like in their homes. You know, I, I used to, you know, I don't know if anybody from the horror is tuned in, but I, I wrote in the coffee shop Mocha. Um, I wrote the early drafts of many of these because I wanted to get away from my home. But I do find that, that, that the really like flow state writing, I can't do in a coffee shop. The flow state writing happens on my bed with the laptop perched on my lap. Um, so Miranda, I don't know, do you write, write in coffee shops? Well, so most coffee shops are closed at 3 a.m., when I finished mopping my floors and brushing my dog and, and arranging my husband's ties by color, it sort of has to happen in my home because um, they just won't let you in. You can go and you can knock on the door, but pretty much everyone is gone. Melita Granger asks, at what stage do you both show your work to a reader? You said it was about 15 drafts in, which is, I think, a, an honest, I, I love it when writers are honest about how grueling the process can be so she's asking at what stage yeah it's yeah. it's 15 drafts in I did I did find an agent uh, when I had four stories and I and four is not usually it's not enough but I had four stories and I was very lucky to find an agent so it's also sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work I don't know what is your opinion of workshops and MFA programs I do have an opinion on MFA programs I have not been to one so I maybe therefore have a strong opinion. I think, I think MFA programs are great if you actually need the structure and you need, you want to be taught how to write at the level of the sentence. 
But I do think, Miranda, and tell me if you agree or disagree, because I'm very curious to know what you think. I do think MFA programs, sometimes, I don't think they fetishize the sentence, but sometimes they, I get the feeling that they tell you that if you can write good prose, then you are there. And I think actually having a story to tell is far more important. You know, I have seen, I have read books that look like they're like MFA workshopped and there's no soul you know, in them. And, and so I think if you, if you were to work at your, on your craft and go to an MFA program, but you have to have a story to tell. And if you have a story to tell and you're weak at the level of craft, then I think you can pull through and work on your craft on your own. But if you have very good craft, but have no story to tell, I think that that's worse. So I have a, I have a strong opinion on this. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think I think that we're gonna wrap up um, yes. after, yeah, we're gonna wrap up. But I, I have to say one, I love having a strong opinion about something that you haven't experienced. That is definitely my favorite way to have a strong opinion. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, the story is the part that can't be taught. So if there's not something that you're burning to express, there's no point, yeah, no, there's no point. That sounds so defeatist. My, my last piece of advice and then, <laughs> And then I will turn things back over to Peter, but uh, that you just should not pay for an MFA program. Don't go into, unless you can afford it, don't go into debt for an MFA program because the rewards monetarily on the other side, they're just not going to be there in yeah. most cases. Yeah. And Miranda, can I just thank you? Because honestly, this was, I know this is my third conversation, but this is the most thoughtful conversation I've had because we talked so much about craft. And so thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Um, it was a pleasure to read your book. I felt inspired and, and energized and awakened, which is just the best, the best experience to have. And I feel very, very lucky to have been in conversation with you. This is so much fun. And thank you to everyone thank for, you. Uh, it seems like potentially across the globe. Um, <laughs> it is a nice, a nice benefit, a silver lining of the pandemic that we're able to share these kinds of events with people who are not in physical spaces with us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you both. This has been such a rich discussion and I have enjoyed it so much. Uh, I'm encouraging everybody, please do purchase a book. All of our events are made possible by the City Lights Foundation, which is carrying on the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, into the future. Please be well, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you all again soon. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.